<clears throat> well, it's a massive blessing for us to hear such basic and yet profound truths from the mouths of our little children. Praise God for them and praise God for the truths that they have just sung to us. When I first came to Four Corners Church, I noticed very quickly how this church rallies around those in need, whether it was new babies or sickness, health issues of various kinds, death in the family, difficulties of all sorts, that is exactly what we have seen in the last 48 hours, to echo what Jared said earlier. By God's grace, and I most certainly emphasize that, by God's grace, the people of Four Corners have rallied around those inside and outside of the church who have been affected by this natural disaster and has been such a blessing to see. And I just want to say, if you are a family that has been affected, I've spoken just with a couple this morning before the service, uh, and things are already really progressing well for them, which is wonderful. But if you are a family who has been affected, we would just say to you as a church to please not be hesitant to ask for more help. Uh, we are here to help you and we want to serve you. Uh, we don't always see the needs that need to be addressed or the kind of service that you need. And so uh, don't be embarrassed about asking us for further help, even if you've already received a lot of it. <clears throat> that is what we are as a church. We are a family. We are the people of God here at Four Corners. And it has been a blessing to watch God's grace, as I said before, work through the lives of his people. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of a few verses. First is a very well-known verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we recognize that we were made for this, or I should say we were remade for this, for good works. But when we carry out these works, we always refer them back to the foreknowledge and predetermined will of God, that he actually prepared every good deed we would ever do. This is incredible. He prepared every good deed we would ever do before the world began that we would walk in them by his grace. And so none of those good deeds can refer back to ourselves in this kind of self-righteousness, but must always be referred back to the kind grace of God that he would use us. Another verse is Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And that is what we have seen, those among us and those outside of the church, some believers, some non-believers, but all in need of good works. And then Titus 3.14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. That verse just really speaks volumes, I think, as we think about that. As Paul was talking to Timothy, he said, look, that's what we ought to be about as Christians, as churches, is good works, devoted to good works as a way of life. Uh, not as an incidental kind of thing, but as a way of life. 
And I want to say this. Some of you may know, may not know Caleb Barker. Uh, he recently came on staff as a part-time, uh, in, uh, part-time here at the church to lead our communications effort. And I just want to say uh, publicly that he has done such an incredible job over the last 48 hours, just keeping everyone tied together, uh, opening up lines of communication. At one point, I think there were, uh, I mean, just uh, innumerable amount of threads coming through on different, uh, different threads coming through uh, through Church Center yesterday. And Caleb was overseeing a lot of that, in addition to being very active the last two days in the field, helping folks and uh, do work at people's houses. So, just grateful to him in particular and so many others, but uh, we want to give thanks to God for one another and honor one another, and so I do that. Our passage for this morning is Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, so if you would go ahead and go with me there in your Bibles. Today is Palm Sunday, and just as King Jesus entered Jerusalem on that day many, many, many years ago. We see here in this text how this Jesus, this King of glory, enters into our wretched state. He enters into our struggle with sin. And particularly as we look forward to Easter, Resurrection Sunday next week, And as we look forward to going into Romans chapter 8, how King Jesus will enter at his second coming. I think that's what's in view, and we'll get there in a moment. I think that's what's in view at the end of Romans 7, when Christ is introduced with these words. As uh, as we read in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who is the remedy for sin? Christ in his first coming, and who is the remedy for yet indwelling sin in the Christian, Christ in his second coming. There will come a day when he will put all sin away for good, all sin. There will be no more sin, not a trace of sin in any heart, in any corner of his created world. Victory through Christ Jesus. We started looking at this text, verses 14 to 25, last week, and we covered only the first paragraph there, uh, verses 14 to 20. Today we'll finish with those latter verses beginning in verse 25. So 25, 21, taking it all the way to the end of the chapter. And the title for the sermon this morning is The Believer's Battle Part 2. Part one last week, part two today. And really, as we go through this large section, we are answering this big question. What's wrong with me? What is wrong with me as you live your life as a Christian, as you go about your daily life as a believer in Jesus Christ, and yet you see sin, you see struggle, you see weakness? What? is wrong with me. I think in some way Christians ask this question every day. And if we're being honest with ourselves and if we are cognizant of ourselves and our surroundings, we ought to ask this question every single day. Because not a day goes by 
that we don't see and feel our own sinfulness. What's wrong with me? That is what Paul is dealing with at the end of this passage, and that is what we deal with as we come to study it. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's Word together. We will read all of chapter 7, and I hope you will focus on Paul's logic as we go through these verses. Uh, Reading Scripture is the most fundamental thing we can do when we gather. In fact, if we could not do anything else, we would read God's Word and respond to it in prayer. So we come now to read Romans chapter 7, follow the logic up to verse 14, and then follow last week's passage up through uh, today's passage, 21 to 25. This is God's Word. It is perfect and profitable for His people. Chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And here's the main point Paul's getting at. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's our old life. Verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And here's our passage for the last couple of weeks. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. There, Paul repeats that idea. And then here's our 
text for today. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The cry of every Christian. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to this text. That God would help us to understand it, that God would help us to apply it, that he himself by his spirit would apply it, that he would convict us of sin, that he would reassure us of his grace, those of us who belong to him, And any among us today who are not converted, who do not belong to God, that God would be gracious and merciful on this Palm Sunday in drawing unbelievers to trust Christ and be forgiven of their sins. So let's pray that God will do this among us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to gather and to sing your praises to call out to you in prayer, to seek the Lord, to sit under your holy word, to listen to it read, to listen to it preached, to see your glory and our great need from your word. Father, we ask that you would guide us now by your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to see clearly what is here in this text that we would understand more what your purposes are, what your redemptive purposes are through Christ, that we would see more clearly what your will is for each of us, and that we would be empowered by your Holy Spirit using your word to go out and to live lives that reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace in the last couple of days as as Christ's likeness has abounded. And Lord, that is a, a, a sign of, of your grace among us, of your Spirit's power among us. What work can any of us do apart from the Spirit's grace? We praise you for that, Lord. And we thank you that you protected those in our congregation. We thank you that you protected uh, this town largely, Lord. And we pray that you would be with those who have suffered greatly the loss of of possessions, and, and Lord, we just ask that you would help the, their, the path to recovery and repair to be smooth. We pray for our officials as they oversee that endeavor. Lord, we pray for us as a church in the coming days and weeks that you would guide us to be light for you in this community, that we would be hands and feet, that we would be uh, mouths to speak, as, uh, as Will reminded us yesterday in that devotional, that we serve not just as those doing charity, but we serve as those who are ambassadors of Christ, who are rejoicing in the gospel and who desire that the rejoicing in the gospel spread in the hearts and minds of people. So Lord, we we pray that you'd be with us in the coming days and weeks. We ask this morning now that you would guide us through your word, that this sermon would be clear, that it would be understood by all, and Lord, that we would 
be changed by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, in verses 14 to 20, we saw the disconnect and the division. Those were our two points, the disconnected experience and the divided person. Uh, As Christians, there is a disconnect between our willing and our acting. There's a disconnect between will and action, between our desiring and our doing. And this is because, as Paul tells us, this is because of a division within us. So a disconnect between what we want to do and what we actually do, what we don't want to do and what we actually do, a disconnect there. And the reason is because we are divided as people. And that only goes for the Christian. The Christian is divided on the inside, wanting to do the right thing, but finding these obstacles to doing that. Paul lays out two, you can't really say entities, but they are put forward, they are portrayed as entities. He puts forward the I, the the real me, as it were, the, the me from within, the deep person of the heart, the I, and indwelling sin. These are the two, and within ourselves we experience this division between the two. And this connect and division set up what we're going to look at today in verses 21 to 25. And we have two things to look at today. Number one, we have the conflict. And secondly, the conclusion. So all that we've read up to this point, verses 14 to 20, are really meant to set up what Paul is going to drive home today. And that is the conflict within us. And then he concludes in verses 24 and 25. So let's look first at the conflict. Look with me again at verses 21 to 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What is going on on the inside of a Christian? We all, if we're believers, we experience the tension (coughs) of wanting to live for the Lord. And by the way, You may want to do good deeds of some sort, but if you don't want to live for the Lord, you are not a Christian. No matter what. If you don't want to live for the Lord, to serve the Lord, desire the Lord, then you are not a Christian. But for those of us who are Christians, we experience this tension. We want to live for the Lord, but finding in ourselves that we struggle to do it. We struggle to carry out those things we know we ought to do. Here, Paul explains that the problem is a conflict. There is a conflict within my disconnected and divided self. There is an ongoing conflict within every believer. It does not stop. And it does not let up. It is amazing to hear the testimonies of older 
people in the Lord. And particularly, older Christians who have really lived for the Lord demonstrably throughout their lives. They've, they've shown the fruit of their conversion. They've shown that they belong to Christ and they have been an instrument of Christ, a vessel in Christ's hand. And to hear them talk of their sinfulness, to hear them talk of their struggles with sin, it never stops. It never lets up. This is the experience of a Christian all the way till death. This is a war that will not end until death or Christ's second coming. And by the way, it's interesting. This is one of the reasons why there is a, a peace in the heart of a Christian as he or she approaches death. Now, there are a lot of reasons for peace in the heart of a Christian as he or she approaches death. But one of those reasons is because sin will be gone. They will be in the presence of Christ. Disembodied, not ideal, but awaiting the resurrection of their perfected body. Free, though, from this mortal body. Free from sin. This, this peace that they have as they approach death, knowing more than anything, I am going to see Jesus I'm going to see Christ and I will not have my sin. You know, as spring gears up and we, hear the, we see the Bermuda grass coming back green and we hear the birds and we see the butterflies, leaves reappear, we start perhaps thinking about what we're going to be doing in the summer Start talking with family members and planning trips and vacations that you're going to take. And we all need those times away, those times of vacation away from the daily uh, mundane activities of life. Just the daily movement of life. But we need to understand that there are no vacations from this battle. There may be vacations from daily life, from the routines of daily life... But there is no vacation from this ongoing conflict, struggle, battle, war in the heart of every Christian. The two contenders in this ongoing battle have already been identified. They were identified back in verses 16 to 17. I'll read that to you. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So we have this conflict between the I and sin that dwells within me. There is the I, the new self created in Christ Jesus, the new creation described in 2 Corinthians 5 17. The one who loves God's will, agrees with God's law, and hates sin. That is the I, if you're a Christian. That's who you really are. That's who you are deep down inside. That's who you are at the core. Second, there is sin that dwells within me. The remnant of that old self, that old inadamness, or we could say that in the fleshness that defined 
every aspect of our condition before Christ. It is truly striking. To read the Bible's description of the unsaved person in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. It's a text that we always go back to because really it's one of the most descriptive passages in all of the Bible for explaining what it is like to be an unbeliever. And the unbeliever does not experience it this way. Because we recognize that the person who is unconverted, who is unsaved, is someone who is deceived and blinded from the truth. From this truth. But this is the description that the Bible gives of a person who is not a Christian, who's not a believer, who has not been reborn, who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, who has not repented of sin. This is what in Adamness looks like. This is what in fleshness looks like. And here's what it says And you were dead <clears throat> in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath, following our own passions and desires, our own lusts for pleasure of whatever sort, following the trends and philosophies of this world and following Satan himself. That's a description of the unbeliever. And yes, it is true. As Christians, we've seen, as we've been going through the early chapters of Romans, as we have seen, we, praise God, live now on the other side of verse 4. We could go on and read in verse 4 and following where it says, But God, but God being rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, and so forth. It describes what God did in raising us up with Christ, uniting us to Christ, joining us with Christ by grace, saving us. And as I read earlier, ultimately preparing these works for us that we would walk in them, as we see in verse 10. So yes, as Christians, we no longer live in the realm of Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We live in Ephesians 2, 4 to 10. And yet we live, here's, this is the important part, we live with the remnants of verses 1 to 3 dwelling within us. Isn't that nasty? That what I just read in verses 1 to 3 dwells in you, dwells in me. It's there. And each of us knows it. It doesn't define us. It no longer has dominion over us. It no longer drives us and controls us, but it is present indeed in all of us. If you're an an unbeliever, it defines you, and it does have dominion over you, whether you know it and recognize it or not. 
If you are a believer, it is present but not in control. That's why Paul says here in verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. There is a law or principle at work within each of us that pulls us away from doing what is right. It is called, notice, evil here. Evil. Now, when we think of evil, we typically think of kind of a, an abstraction. You know, evil is this sort of thing out there. Uh, it's, it's kind of, it's an abstract idea. Or maybe if we do make it more concrete, we give this concept, this abstract idea of evil, more concreteness, we will typically attach it to a particularly diabolical person like Hitler, right? He's the quintessential expression of human evil for most people. In our society, though, there are many others in the world that we could identify in that way. That's what we do. We abstract it out or we attach it to a particularly evil person. No, those things are true, but evil is present inside of you. Evil, evil, not mistakes, not just weakness. Evil is present in each of you and in my heart. It's present in all of us as believers, even as believers. It's one of the reasons why we are gracious towards those in sin. Remember that you too were at that time, Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He, he's telling us to be courteous to all people. And he says, remember, you were like them at one point. Those, those unbelievers who are carrying on those wicked acts. We may protest. And we may call evil, evil. But we recognize that every person who commits those evil acts is like us, just like us, apart from the grace of God. And in fact, we see the remnant of that very thing they do in us. It changes the way we relate to our unbelieving friends and family. And it is this principle within us that gives rise to the conflict. And notice it's inside us and not outside of us. This is why James chapter 1 verses 14 to 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The devil made me do it. Or what Eve Said, well, Eve did say that. Adam blamed it on Eve. It just won't work. The problem is within us. Yes, we are tempted. We have an enemy, and he will be eliminated one day. He will be destroyed. John 17 describes uh, this enemy, and we find him described as Jesus is praying that high priestly prayer on our behalf. We find descriptions of him. We have a real enemy named Satan. The devil, he is a real being. He is an angel that fell. 
And there are many other angels who fell, called demons. These are devils. And they are real. And they tempt us, and they are our enemies. But the the problem is not on the outside. It is our own sinful hearts. It's in us. And even as Christians, it is still in us. On one side of this conflict is the inner being. Notice what Paul says here, the inner being who delights in God's holy law. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is one of the clearest indicators that this passage is talking about the Christian experience. Remember we talked last week about how some commentators and scholars have said, look, this is a description of an unbeliever because of certain aspects, and we talked about that last week. I won't rehash that now. But then other aspects make clear that this is talking about a believer. And how in the world can we say, even those who argue that this passage is referring to an unbeliever's experience, even they say that this is a pretty significant point. Verse 22, how can an unbeliever be one who delights in the law of God in the inner being? This delight in God's law, his will, the expression of his character is found only in the righteous, those who are known by God. When we read Psalm 1, for example, as Jared did earlier, we see that it it distinguishes What's the difference between the righteous and the wicked in Psalm 1? The difference between the righteous who are like trees that bear fruit and the wicked who are like chaff that the wind drives away. The difference is that the Psalm 1 person does not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But what? There's the contrast. What's the, what's the difference between, between them and this person? He delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This is a person later described as righteous. It is a person later described as one who is known by God. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we see... When we come to this verse, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, cannot be referring to an unbeliever. And this inner being that Paul speaks of, this spiritually alive self, belongs only to the Christian. Listen to these two verses where we see this pop up elsewhere in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This this whole category of inner self, of inner being, is something that is entirely Christian. That we are undone, we are in Adam, God saves us, and now we have an inner self, an inner being devoted to the Lord. And as we see here, it's being renewed day by day. Again, Ephesians 3, 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Where? In your inner being. This is where it happens. So that's one side of the conflict, but there's another side. On the other side, we have what Paul describes in verse 23. Look with me there. 
Verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Though we are no longer enslaved to sin, and we're not as Christians, sin can nonetheless capture us by taking hold of our bodily members from our brains to our fingers, from our tongues to our toes, from in to out, from top to bottom. This bodily existence, this embodied existence that we have. Sin can take and capture us in that. Sin assaults us and it captures us from within So what is our great objective in this battle? Paul describes it in chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So some some say, let let me just put this comment out there. Some say, well, this has to be referring to an unbeliever because we're not enslaved to sin anymore as Christians. And so any notion in this text that there's somehow sin is capturing us or enslaving us, we're sold under sin, as we saw earlier, verse 14, any idea like that is foreign to the Christian experience. So this can't be describing a Christian. But remember, back in chapter 6, when Paul was describing the fact that we are no longer enslaved to sin, that we are no longer under sin, he says things like this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, you can fall into that, right? You may not be enslaved to sin, but there, is, there are times when you can let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's when it captures you. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That implies you can present them as instruments or weapons for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And in order to do this, I mean, this sounds so great, right? We come to church, we hear, present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. All right, I'm gonna do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that on the drive home. I'm going to do that when I get home. I'm going to do that this afternoon when I meet this person. I'm going to do that when I make that difficult phone call later today. I'm going to do that tonight when on my trip away, I'm staying in a hotel away from my family. I'm going to do that tomorrow when I'm interacting with someone in my family who is kind of difficult to get along with and so forth. I'm going to present my members to God as instruments for righteousness. Okay, okay. And then, and, and then we don't. And then we don't, right? We're, we're geared up, but we don't. What's the problem? In order to do this, we need, as Ephesians 3.16 says, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit in charismatic circles gets a lot of attention for ecstatic experiences. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The emphasis is not on ecstatic experiences. It is in being strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner being to kill sin. 
That's the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Not outlandish experiences. And we need, as Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's Christ's might. Christ is mighty against sin. He conquered it every second in his perfection. And he conquered it at the cross. He said, as I told our son when he was two repeatedly, he said, no devil. Jesus said, no devil every time. We need that might. We need that strength in us. And that only happens by the Spirit of Christ who in us works this sin-hating, sin-killing, sin-destroying strength. And this is why Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. All your resolutions, all your type A discipline, whatever, in ruins at the end of the day. You don't think that the devil can handle your motivation and discipline? He's been knocking that over for thousands of years for millennia he's been crushing self-reliant disciplined people under their own sin and laughing we need christ apart from him we can do nothing apart from him we fall every time as long as we live in this fallen world in these mortal bodies with this indwelling sin we are in an intense battle. And that leads Paul to the following conclusions. This is where we'll finish up today. The conclusion in verses 24 to 25. Look with me there. Wretched man that I am. Let me just pause there. Early on in the history of the church, the the earliest church fathers, the Greek church fathers, uh, they they wrote that this passage could not possibly be referring to a believer because they did not want to put something like this on Paul. I mean, he's the apostle. How on earth could the apostle himself say, wretched man that I am? I mean, this is holy Paul. This is Saint Paul as he came to be known. This is, this is the apostle who said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is the apostle who frequently would defend his ministry and the integrity of it and the authenticity of it to his detractors. This is the Paul who worked harder than them all and suffered more than them all and ultimately died as a martyr. This is an apostle who confronted Peter himself. Wretched man that I am. Yes, even Paul. Let me continue. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In these two verses, Paul draws all of this to a fitting conclusion. And it really is a threefold conclusion. So I want to go through each aspect of this conclusion. Of, of all that Paul has been saying, he reaches a concluding point, and it has three facets to it. So let's look at the first one. First, 
we see Paul's poverty of spirit. That's the first conclusion to all of this that the apostle comes to in his own mind and as he verbalizes here in writing his poverty of spirit. This is like what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are getting an illustration of being poor in spirit here in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. This is an illustration of Paul's poverty of spirit. The very famous and ancient Greek philosopher Socrates was famous for a particular saying. His saying was simply, know thyself. Know yourself. And he would go into uh, the marketplace and he would debate these so-called philosopher types and he would just twist them up with questions, just asking them questions, drawing out their ignorance, drawing out their, their inconsistency, drawing out their lack of self-knowledge. Know thy self. And in truth, it is only the Christian who comes anywhere close to doing this. It is only the Christian who comes anywhere remotely close to having a right view of self. And the truth is, we are blinded even in our sinfulness. We are blinded to so much about the depth of our sinfulness in our own hearts. And that's why trials come along and other things come along and we see it. And it's ghastly. We're like, oh man, that's in me. I said that. I did that. I thought that. I imagined that. Oh, it's ghastly. We didn't know it before and God reveals it to us. We are increasingly coming to know ourselves more and more by Christ as we grow in knowledge of him. But as we've seen, what we discover in ourselves is not pretty at all. As we come to know ourselves more and more, what we find is, yes, although we are remade, indwelt by the Spirit, being conformed to the image of Christ, all the while, what's been described up to this point is at work in us. And it was at work in Paul. It battles and takes us captive. That is why Paul says, wretched man that I am. Despite all of his sanctification, despite all of the, the, the service he had done for the Lord, despite all of the epistles he had written to, to establish the church of Jesus Christ around the Mediterranean world, wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else, wretched man that I am. We live a Galatians 5.17 life. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul lived that, Galatians 5, 17. You live that, I live that. We all do. So what is the conclusion? This heart cry of self-knowledge, and poverty of spirit. Again, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And of course, this paves the way for the second part of Paul's conclusion. So that's the first aspect of his conclusion in these verses is the poverty of spirit. That self-realization of sinfulness and need. The second aspect of this conclusion is his longing for Christ's return. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now how do we know from right here, from this portion, how do we know that Paul is referring to Christ's return? I mean, did that, is that being imported into the text? We don't see anything about Christ coming back in the clouds or any reference to that. Why, why am I saying that the emphasis here, when Paul celebrates Christ out of this wretchedness, why am I saying that he is referring to Christ's return? Well, there's a couple reasons, but first, there's this future tense verb. Notice, who will deliver me from this body of death? The experience of Paul that was just described is still his experience. Christ has come. He has died. He has been raised. He has been enthroned and seated at the right hand of the Father. He reigns from heaven. And yet Paul is experiencing all of this. What's he, what's he waiting on? Hasn't Christ already done it? Yes, and that's why he delights in the law of God in his inner being. That's why he can say what he says in this verse, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But what has begun has not been consummated yet. And that is why Paul is looking forward to Christ's second coming. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he thanks God for Christ. In other words, who will make it to where I no longer live like this in a divided self. Who's going to stop this? In a fierce battle that rages within, who will deliver me from this condition I've just been describing? That's what Paul cries out at the beginning of this verse. And in addition to the future tense of the verb, there's the context in Romans 8, where we're headed. It's pretty neat that we're coming up to Romans 8, Verse 1, right on Easter Sunday, I thought you think about when you come up to a passage, you know, where when you come up to something like Easter or Christmas, you think, well, we're going to go here or go there, and you think about that in advance, but it's amazing that uh, we're, we're going to be right here in Romans 8, all of this about the resurrection. But verses 10 to 11 in Romans 8 says, but if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, notice Paul's describing a Christian. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now listen, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's looking forward these mortal bodies are dead, but one day they're going to have life and they're going to be life. We will see Christ with our very eyes. We will praise him with these lips and tongues and mouths. We will, we will serve him eternally with these feet and hands. But they will be remade. And then in verse 23 of chapter 8, and not only the creation, Paul's talking about the restoration of the created order, that's fitting in light of a recent tornado. 
not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now that's fascinating because Paul seems to split adoption into two categories. Are we adopted? Yes and no. Yes, we've been adopted. We've, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We cry, Abba, Father. We are adopted children of God. And yet Paul can say in Romans 8 that we are waiting eagerly for adoption as sons. What's he talking about there? Well, he tells us the redemption of our bodies, our adoption by God is not complete until that part is accomplished. Right now we are experiencing in our inner being the first part of that adoption as sons. The second part will come with the redemption of our bodies at the end of time. Next week, as I've said, is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. What are we celebrating next week? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But this is not merely an event in history that roots our faith. And maybe you think about the resurrection that way. An event in history that roots our faith. And so, you know, you've read several books on the apologetics of of the resurrection, which is great. And in fact, a a couple of uh, years ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, and we looked at that evidential aspect to it. It, it, is, it is the significant event in, in the history of the universe that does, in fact, root our faith. But it's more than that. It is also a source of celebration for us because of what it means for our bodies, because of what it means for our future existence with God. The resurrection is the central event of the universe that happened in space and time. It is the basis for our faith and it is also the basis for our future hope that we will one day, like Christ, be raised. His resurrection ensures that one day there will be an end to indwelling sin. There will be an end to this conflict that we just discussed. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That's what's coming. And then in verses 56 to 57 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul's saying in this verse for us today. Romans 7, verse 24, I think is echoing what Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. So that's the second aspect of it. The first is that poverty of spirit. The second is that anticipation of Christ's return when indwelling sin will be put away. And finally, as we finish up this morning, we come to the third part of Paul's conclusion. As long as we carry around these mortal bodies We must live in the Spirit. We must live in the Spirit. It is the only hope for a thriving, flourishing Christian life. It is the only hope for obedience to all the imperatives, commands of the New Testament. It is the only hope if we are to be found fruitful on that day. The latter part of verse 25 says this, So then I myself 
serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Notice that. The, the remedy, the conclusion is not that this whole sin from the flesh thing be reversed. No, that is what it is. That's, that's, that's in Adam. That's going to be, that's going to be brought, uh, done away with in the future. But that is a reality. What's the remedy? It's not to change that. It is to focus on this other thing. It is to dwell in this other reality, which is the law of God with our minds. As Christians, we are those who now categorically are according to the Spirit. As Christians, we are according to the Spirit. That's a category. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. We have put on Christ. We have died to sin. We are no longer according to the flesh. That's not who we are. We are according to the Spirit. And yet, day by day, hour by hour, we can choose to sow to the flesh rather than the Spirit. We can choose to feed our flesh. We can choose to feed this, this old inadamness principle that dwells within us that is dead and will perish. We can choose to fall away from Scripture, prayer, and the body of Christ. You know, it's amazing. The Christian life, there are so many books out there written. Publishers galore. Authors galore. It makes us think. It really does. And it's a bit deceptive. And it's part of our capitalistic culture, honestly. But it makes us, it makes us think that unless we read all these books, we can't do it. We can't live the Christian life unless I read those 10 books on parenting. Because without those, I will crumble. I have to read that book on spiritual warfare. I have to read those five books on that topic, on marriage or whatever. And let me say this. Christians have always recognized the importance of good books. Look at the period of the church fathers or the Reformation or the period of the Puritans in particular. Good books are an important means of Christian growth. So don't hear me saying otherwise. But I do want to say this. To live in the Spirit doesn't require all those books. It doesn't require all those books. It requires Scripture, prayer, and the people of God. That's, what, that's what's needed. That is what is needed to walk in the Spirit. And as we think about uh, the, the people of God, that includes good books that the people of God have written to help. Well, we ought not to think that until we reach our reading goal, we're really going to be slogging it out down in the ditch. No. By the Spirit and the simple, ordinary means of grace, the Bible, prayer, and the people of God. So what's the answer? Serve the law of God with your mind. Only the believer can do this. Live from your inner being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And do not present your members ever, not even a finger, to the flesh, to sin. Do not present your eyes not even a second glance and avoid the first if possible. Present not your members to sin. That is how the flesh becomes stronger in us. 
live from the inner being, empowered by the Holy Spirit, immersed in the sanctifying word of God, praying the scriptures, singing and making melody in our hearts to God, to one another, before one another, in this harmonious celebration of God's grace. Be filled with the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. I end where I did last week as well. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for reminding us of who we are, humbling us, and thank you for showing us that even in this life there is hope through our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit to live fruitful lives. And even as we've seen in the last 48 hours, we've seen the work in the Spirit done in your name, God. We praise you for that. That comes by your Spirit. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we will be raised with new bodies and not a trace of sin will be found. Mortal bodies put away, put away and we will live forever with Jesus. We will be like him. We will see him and we will be like him. We praise you, God. And I ask, Father, this morning that if there is any among us who is not a Christian, Lord, that they would consider these words today. Turn from sin, turn from self-reliance, turn from worldliness, and turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for the picture of these gospel realities that we get this morning through the Lord's Supper. Would you bless this time? In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll be